Hooper now offloads. Oh, so close, still short. Glaubanga. There he is! He's over! Hello and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. We are diehard rugby fans having weekly chat about all things Aussie rugby. We're real, family-friendly and positive, so get involved. Get Get involved. involved. Now, guys, that was perfectly in sync. Well done. (laughs) And I do need to just start the pod on a bit of a somber note with the pretty horrific news that has come out of Queensland with everything that's happened with the uh, Kefu family. So thoughts and prayers, well wishes. If you're the praying type, then pray for them. But it's an absolutely horrific circumstance that they found themselves in. The news as of recording is that Torai Kefu does appear to... um, be on the road to recovery after the successful surgery earlier today so that is positive news but if people could also be um keeping his wife and family in prayers as well because they are meant to be going for surgery tomorrow okay so horrific horrific news Uh, one thing that's been really positive to kind of see from this is the way in which the rugby community is just hugely rallied around them and to see how much of a well-loved figure of rugby and just the public he is so yeah Best wishes to the Kefus and their family and friends at this point. Now, we have so much to talk about in this episode. Um, I actually just had to bully the boys into actually starting to hit the record button because they just wanted to keep chatting the whole time without actually recording anything. (laughs) So in a moment, I'll take you through what we're going to talk about. But importantly, we've got some social media and Superbrew updates that Mitch is going to go through. So Mitch, over to you. Awesome. So we're on Instagram at hashtag pick underscore drive underscore rugby. We're on Facebook at the Pick and Drive Rugby podcast page, and we're also on Twitter at Pick underscore Drive Rugby. So definitely give us a like, a like, and a follow. <laughs> I've got both of those in the same word there. A like and a follow on our social media, and um, and get involved because we'd love to hear from you. Now we've started up a Super Brew competition for the Rugby Championship, which kicked off over the weekend. I won't tell everyone where I am, um, <laughs> quite embarrassingly, but we can I'm say not. that. After round one, we've got, um, oh, I don't know how to say this. The, the, the names are always quite <laughs> um, strange. Sis PT2. Sis PT2 is taking out the yellow cap. So he's sitting in top spot on 15 points. Um, is that right? Does that? 2.5 no, no, points. 2.5 points. 2.5 points. Okay. So what is the TW? Anyway. Um, and so Rugby Sicko in second spot on also two and a half points with the rib father in third spot also on two and a half points it's pretty so tight it's, it's tied up there at the moment so well done to everyone on getting those right definitely give us uh we'll get involved look at our social media if you want to be involved in it we've already got about something like 45 people in the the tipping pool at the moment so definitely get involved and and you can tip along with us Fantastic. And uh, each week we'll have an update of how badly the three of us are going. So that'll be fantastic. Rugby Sicko does it every body time. He's always up there. Same with SysPT2. And please tell us how to say your name properly if you do listen to the pod. Um, Now, this evening, like I said, we've got heaps to go through. We need to chat through the horrific occasion, which was Bledisloy 2 on the weekend. I think some of our cautious optimism or for Mitch um, unbridled optimism in tipping the Wallabies uh, really revealed the gold blood that runs through our veins and just obscures us to any sense of reality. So what occurred, we'll go through and unpack that. But in a way, it's actually been overshadowed by the news that Rugby Australia is set to scrap the Giddo War at the end of the upcoming spring tour. So again, 
we'll be talking through that and the implications that it may well have for Australian rugby. We will touch on this South African-Argentina game. We didn't get to preview it because we didn't have time. And we're not going to talk about it that much tonight because we've got so much other stuff to talk about because we then need to head to the locker room where we have so many questions and comments that have been coming in. So we'll cover some of them um, as we address each of the different topics. But yeah, there are still some that we need to get to at the end. So there's a lot coming, a lot happening. Let's get into it. Let's go. Okay, we have recovered. It is Monday night, and we've finally sort of dried the tears of a 57 to have 22 we, loss. Have we really? White well, hot rage still courses <laughs> through my veins. The, the stains are drying up on my pillow, boys, but I, um, I, I can understand if there's uh, still some, some uh, dissatisfaction, some anger, some resentment, whatever emotion we're feeling, we'll dive into very soon, but... Uh, a 57 to 22 point loss is a record. The most points the All Blacks have ever scored in us in 118 years. So um, that should speak for itself. Um, 22 points for us. I mean, maybe there's some silver lining because that's you know more points than a lot of teams score against the All Blacks. But it really did make for a game of two halves. <laughs> First half we were looking somewhat good, and second half we were looking the opposite of that. So I'll let you guys dive into that quite soon. But just I guess some of the key stats uh, we had 58 percent of the possession, which speaks volumes we had a lot of the good territory as well so we're playing in the right parts of the field but it was eight tries to three uh the all blacks made more than 200 extra meters than our 465 uh despite us carrying 26 more times they beat more defenders made more clean breaks uh they offloaded better but not more um really everything just kind of went their way and we allowed it so we'll dive into the first big point what went well for Australia? We'll start positive, and then we might let the uh, the fireworks go. So, uh, and I'll start with you. What went well in this Wallabies performance? Um, Tate McDermott's first half was fantastic. He played really, really well. He was sitting the defence down on her heels around the rucks. He was creating a bit of space for himself and the other forward runners just running off his hip. Uh, he had probably his best 40 minutes that he's had in Wallabies colours um, and kind of up there with some of the really standout Reds performances that he's had over the last two seasons. So I was really impressed with Tate McDermott um, if we ignore the implosion of the whole team in the second half, not just him. That's pretty fair. I think we're, we're sort of tiptoeing around the what went poorly but Mitch I'll get your positive thoughts before we go uh, what, what did you like from that Wallabies performance? Uh, Andrew Kellaway put in another great performance yep. he's really cemented yep. his uh, position in that 11 or whatever side he started on I think it was 14 this 14. week actually but yep. yeah so he's he's firming up very nicely as our second wing option outside Corabetti uh, scored another two tries nearly got a third one so that'd be four tries against the All Blacks in two weeks or it is three tries against the All Blacks in two weeks so yeah really impressed with Andrew Kellaway's going from strength to strength I think that's one of the things that's come up so much is Andrew brought up Tate uh, he brought up Kellaway like they got a lot of plaudits after the match and then the other player I mean Corbetti week in week out he's, he's pretty solid I like bits of Valentini but Michael Hooper yep. I mean if there's ever been a cause for saying sabbaticals aren't a bad idea he is showing that you know he can come back and not just be as good as he was when he left, but better. He is the Wallabies team, really, at the moment. So um, I'm very concerned to see him back in the sky blue next year, but I'm loving it at the moment <laughs> with the, the Cadbury gold. I'm loving seeing him back there. Um, clearly, what we're going to talk about more is what went poorly. Um, I'm very grateful to start with that I'm not recording this on a Sunday night um, <laughs> because I was, I was still furious. Yep. And I don't, I don't have that same emotion right now. Um, once we get talking about it, I probably will. But at the moment, 
I just think it was a very, very sloppy second half. So, Mitch, I will go straight back to you. What happened? How did it all fall apart so spectacularly? I just think that we ended up initially, so the first, well, what was it, 42nd, 43rd minute when uh, Akira Yuani gets, oh, no, no, um, Surveyor, sorry, gets that yellow card and we go hard at the line, get the uh, not straight throw in awarded against us and then they end up going full field and scoring. There ends up being a 10-point deficit in that um, in that sort of period when we're a man above them. Uh, the heads just dropped and things started to go wrong and it didn't look like anyone really knew what to do and they started to panic. They started to throw silly passes, kick the ball away on, on, with nothing on um, and just fall off tackles and the All Blacks just pounced on that and just made us pay. Well, that was, I guess, one of the big issues. It's just you could see that sort of mental collapse as soon as that line-out wasn't hit by BPA everything just sort of went completely like offline. I, I couldn't understand what was happening. And to be honest, I, I was shocked that it took so long, if you could say at all, for us to sort of switch back on. And was that pretty similar to you? Or what else did you notice that just really went against the Wallabies there? Yeah, look, it was that main moment that I was going to identify as well with that BPA, not straight, line-out call. Quick question before I keep going. Um, I thought that there had been a law amendment that if a team doesn't get up in the air to compete, it doesn't matter if it's not straight. I've got I've got a big rant coming around that. Okay. Um, all right, all so right. we'll, so we'll see that right later. So am I right in my thought there, Mitch? It's Without not, going it's into not, your rant? It's not technically a rule in the rule book. Okay. Um, but the way that it was refereed for the majority of the game goes to... Th- you would think that the, it okay. wasn't a rule. They scored right. a try off and in... So... Um, there's that first through. point where, look, we didn't throw the ball straight. And then just the compounding penalties. There were like three penalties in a row immediately afterwards that just walked them down the field and then they score a try soon after. And they're up um, seven points with a penalty that comes later as well. Ten points when they have a man in the bin. And it was just so, so difficult to watch because then we compounded our errors further by throwing stupid cutout passes when it's not on. Um, and it is just something that we've seen time and time again from Wallabies teams where they look to push passes and push opportunities because they're trying to chase the game rather than trusting themselves, trusting the players around them and trusting in the way in which they've been coached to play. Mm. And um, as much as I like this guy as a person, as well as kind of like a rugby player for his experience, Matty Tamua, I am really struggling to see him keeping his spot within a team and within the squad moving forward. The fact that he threw that cutout pass after being the experienced head who's meant to be better than that is just incredibly disappointing. And I know he was guilty of it within the Super Rugby season. I'm just wondering if it's getting to the point of you just pick and stick with some of the younger guys and let them develop. It's, um, it is a puzzling one as well because Dave Brenny's come out afterwards in his post-match uh, press conference and said that they spoke all week around expecting the All Blacks to be up in their face in those instances and putting it on the toe, putting the ball behind them because there's space there. Now, if you look at that instance, um, the first intercept try that Akira, uh, Rico Yuani scores, that we have an overlap. If the ball goes through the hands, it goes to Michael Hooper and he commits uh, Akira to... Uh, I keep saying the wrong one. <laughs> um, he commits... Uwani to the tackle and then it offloads. He's got Corabetti uh, and I think Banks outside him. So we probably, we've got an overlap there. We end up probably scoring, but he th- goes for the cutout pass that he picks up perfectly and then runs full field and scores. 
it's the same thing. Like they're talking about it in the lead up and the game plan of expecting them to do that, put the ball on the toe, look for that space behind. And yet we've we've given them three tries from soft intercepts. It, it just doesn't make sense that you could be going into a game knowing that that's what you've spoken about, expecting the All Blacks to do that. Yet when you're under the pump, you go straight back in and throwing those silly passes. Especially when we saw it work for the Tom Banks try last week. We saw that space back there and the smart grubber kick through, it really exposed it. And I think one of the things that Rennie alluded to with that, that same sort of comment was the side isn't kicking first as a mentality. Like they really have to think about doing it because they've been coached their whole you know, junior life. It's a really Australian thing. Um, run it, running run the ball, pass the ball, but we're not kicking it. Like that's a real like um, sort of taboo subject for Australian rugby for some reason. And so you could just see all these moments where nearly every grubber was executed poorly and every cutout was executed poorly because probably in those 50-50 shots, they just made the wrong decision because instead of just acting on what was best, they're thinking, okay, wait, should I grubber? Because I've been told to grubber. Actually, no, I'm not going to. I've left it too late. And it's just those sort of moments that they really need to make a split decision because a lot of coaches have said that you have to trust your playmaker to make these decisions in the moment. And, you know, Tamil is the most experienced playmaker, but I'm with you, Ando. Like, he... He was probably the biggest disappointment from that Wallaby side, which, you know, annoyingly, I thought he might be like a bit of a glue and a bit of a resolve for us there. Yep. But With on that speaking point to as that. well, I just wanted to quickly say, we seem to be afraid to take the line on or to just take the hit. Um, in a lot of those instances, the player finds themselves in either space or isolated. And so they go for a kick like Matt Tamu did in the 81st minute, kicked the ball away ridiculously and gave them... The possession back or throws a big intercept just take the tackle the players are around you if you take the contact we can then turn it over and settle and go back to set piece but they seem to just panic when they find either find themselves in space or find themselves in a little bubble uh, and they're not taking the contact part of me really wants to see a eddie jones-esque alternatum put in where he just where, where um dave rennie just says if you throw a cutout pass you're pulled he just pulled he did that he did a similar thing with japan where he banned some of his japanese players um from kicking he forced them to run it back from wherever they were just as an an example of trying to build this mentality of we are capable and we are aggressive and we will look for attacking opportunities and to exploit these attacking opportunities and i just want something like that to be put into play because the the cutout passes are just killing me the frustrating thing is that we actually have no one that we can play to to learn that. Um, Japan would go up against the other Asian nations in those Pacific or Asian qualifying tournaments and be able to play that because they're at a higher standard than everyone they're playing. We unfortunately play the All Blacks three times a year. It's the one team that we seem to be able to trial against. We don't. We play South Africa twice. We play Argentina twice. We don't play anyone else. So we don't really have anyone apart from ourselves to play against at training to learn things i guess that ties in pretty well to the next point i want to touch on then we've obviously had two losses to the all blacks one of them has counted for the rugby championship and unfortunately it's the bigger loss so it really puts us squarely at the bottom of the table um does this write off any hope for australia in the rugby championship like technically we've still got five games ahead of us but is there really a chance of us I'm not even going to say winning. I don't think that's an option. But is there a chance of us even finishing second based off this? And I'll throw to you for that one. I'm just trying to do the numbers in my head, which isn't my strong game here. Um, so... You're a history I, teacher. 
Yeah, I'm a math teacher. Rev, I need you for this, mate. <laughs> um, basically, I don't think so because it's likely that South Africa is going to get the two wins over Argentina um, after the performance that we saw on the weekend. Uh, it's also likely that New Zealand will get two wins over Argentina as well just because of the quality of the rugby that they're playing at the moment. Maybe New Zealand and South Africa take one game apiece. Maybe. Um, and so that then leaves each of them on three wins and it would require us to beat both Argentina, like beat them twice and beat New Zealand or South Africa once for us to come second. I, that's what my pre my pre-competition hopes were, but they've been quashed a bit with the quality or the lack of quality in our performance. So, I mean, it's a mathematical possibility, obviously, but I am not confident we can even scrape into second. I just think if finishing above Argentina is the minimum at this point. It is a shame because we sort of go into the match and we were, you know, we had two people saying a close loss to the All Blacks. Uh, Mitch was confident of a, a <laughs> narrow win, but in any case, we thought it was going to be a tight game. Mm. Um, and it is, it's really disappointing to see a 35-point loss um, because the thing that you know we're not even taking into account yet is the bonus points. You know, New Zealand and South Africa both got True. bonus point yep. wins over us. Yep. I can't see a world in which we get a bonus point win over Anyone. Argentina. Yeah. Like, even if we do beat them, that's it's not as if we're going to completely dominate them with this side, I don't think. But, you know, there's still an opportunity. Mitch, it, I guess, are you in the same sort of position as us, you know? We can't I'll, finish second now. I'll be that uh, the optimistic, positive person for the podcast, and I'll say we can. Thank you. I'll we, th- we needed I'll wave, someone. I'll <laughs> wave the Wallabies flag and say that we have potentially some personnel coming back from injury and coming into the squad that has the potential to turn things around for us. Uh, we've got Samu Krevi joining the squad for the next game in Perth. We've got Quade Cooper sitting on the bench, who, who knows, he might get a game against Argentina or two. Um, and we've got James O'Connor potentially coming back from injury. So if we get all those three players back in the squad, we're probably looking at a different outcome. Not necessarily in this game, but I think they've got um, the ability to turn the the favour back around. Um, so yeah, let's be optimistic and say we, we like statistically it. can. I like how you're mentioning a lot of ex-Reds players and current Reds players as the people coming back. That That is a beacon of light and a sign of uh, truth and hope. So I guess, let's say hypothetically, we've got um, Karevi jumping straight into the starting team and O'Connor jumping straight into the starting team. Yep. Neither are locked in, or that likely, I guess, but let's say that's going to happen. What are the Wallabies' chances in Perth? Mitch, do you think we could you know, spring that sort of upset if we've got both Jock and Karevi back Look, in the team? It, it always comes down to what the All Blacks do, and it happens every single year. They put all their eggs in the second Bledisloe basket, and... Most of the time, they've they've always sorry they've always tied up the Bledisloe by the second test, and that third game is a dead rubber. So they they trial combinations, they bring in players who haven't got a whole lot of tests, they rest some of their stars, and we go all right. We play in Australia, so we've got the crowd behind us, and some of the calls go a little bit our way, and we generally do pretty good there. So I'm hopeful that something similar will happen again this year, and that they will rest some of their bigger players, maybe give Mawanga a rest start Barrett or something like that, um, and the Wallabies might have a chance. And Look, you're probably right with all that. It's just, it does annoy me then as a Wallabies fan to think that do we need to put an asterisk next to these wins? Because even that win we got uh, last year in Brisbane was a great result, but, you know, Bowden Barrett was starting his first game at 10 like they'd used Richie Moonga at 10 all the other games. Uh, they brought Lamarpe in for his first start. There was a bit of a change to the um, backs in the back row as well. Um, no Dane Coles. Like they, they made all these big changes for that last match. So we did win, 
but it was also off the back of them not playing their strongest team. So there was two red cards in that concern. game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the red card both ways made it a little bit fairer, I guess, and there wasn't too much time, like both first half red cards, but still, you'd love to beat them without the asterisks. And I think, you know, going into the, the dead rubber, um, it's hard to do that. I don't know, man. There's a part of me that's happy to beat them with an asterisk. At this, where we currently nice. sit in Australian rugby, we'll take any victory. I'll take against an anyone any day. against anyone. <laughs> asterisks yeah. or no asterisks, who cares? We'll take it. Well, let's switch from asterisks to question marks because we did get a lot of questions from the um, the Twitter faithful. We've got so many people coming in, um, and it's great to hear the feedback. And the best bit is these guys got in as soon as the match was finished. So this is raw emotion. This is you know unbridled fury for a lot of them. So. Um, let's get into them and see how, I guess, how social media felt about the match and what things we can take away from it. So Jason Sherman was one of the first in saying, is a solution for Australian rugby simply to not play against any New Zealand team or just play them as little as possible? Uh, Ando, do you want to stop these matches against New Zealand? No. Uh, I think all the professional players and coaches are saying, absolutely no, you've got to play against the best to become the best. And I do understand the arguments against having opportunity to, like Mitch was saying, trial different combinations, different modes of playing. But uh, no, geographically it makes sense. Financially it makes sense. And they're one of the best teams in the world for a reason. May as well play them. How does it make sense? It makes How no sense. How does it not make sense? They're literally the country next to us. Yes, it make, geographically is probably the Thank only you. thing in there that makes sense. We have well, lost to them. them. We've lost to them 19 years in a row now. 19 mm. years in the Bledisloe. It's an obsolete tournament. <laughs> it's Essentially, it is. It's not competitive anymore. I, I'm with you on that, Mitch. People, um, and people I work with, so a lot of them are older than me and, you know, lived through the, the Wallabies sort of awesome periods of the, you know, 80s Grand Slams and the 90s World Cups. Um, I don't have any attachment to the Blood Azoi because I've never been a fan while we've had it. You know, mm, I started watching yeah. rugby probably 2004 or five. Like, that's, I, I saw matches before that, but like religiously following them maybe around 2005. Yeah. We've never had the Blood Azoi in that time. So to me, it it isn't like an attainable car. It's like if you said, oh, don't you miss not having a Ferrari? Never had one, so I don't care. Like, it's not a, it's not a big deal at the moment because I've never won it. Um, so I, I am kind of on board with that notion, but at the same time, I want to play New Zealand as much as possible. They are the benchmark, and I'm not really... Like, if we played Tonga five times a year, that doesn't really... If we got five wins, that doesn't help us in any real tangible way. So um, I, I'm all for the battles. I think there's a difference but... between playing Tonga and playing New Zealand, though. I mean, we're oh, not. Definitely. I'm not saying that we go out and play uh, Papua New Guinea or... Uh, the Cook Islands. That's not what I'm saying. But we don't necessarily put ourselves four, three or four times a year up against New Zealand. No one else in world rugby does that. We can go off and play Ireland. We can play England. We can play Wales. We can play France. We can build competitions with those teams. Have them come down for tours and, and whatnot. I don't think it's actually helping Australian rugby from a fan point and get fan engagement point from a competition point from a pro- pure product point to be playing against New Zealand because we've not won. We've just gone through Trans-Tasman where in, what was it, 25 games or something, we won two of them. Yeah. It's killing and, the sport. We're in and, such and a competitive a market. And, and Like, that's not a new thing either. Like, 2016 to 2018, we had 40 consecutive losses. So the whole notion of playing New Zealand sides, it's not a, a new thing. It's not because we've got a young side. 
it has been something we've struggled with for a while, the Australian team. So, um, unfortunately, it's going to take something quite drastic to happen. So I'm, I'm keen to see what the powers of B decide to do. But we'll, we'll keep going here because we've got a lot of questions. Adam Toomey came in uh, saying, why do the Wallabies insist on aimlessly kicking away possession? And we did sort of cover that a little bit. It, it's that mix of the not knowing what to do in the right times, but there is one particular kick that I'm sure we're thinking of. <laughs> Ando, do you want to cover that kick? It seems like you... Did it happen in the 81st minute of the game? <laughs> that is one of the most aimless ones I've seen, yes. Oh my God, just... Kick yeah, it out. Even Kick it yeah. out or keep... Or whatever, let's not talk about it. The one that I'll add to that is the Noah Lola CO yes bomb, yeah yep which to me and i've got to say like james o'connor was guilty of that during super rugby as well it, it's not just a noah problem it's an australian issue of uh we're under pressure we're told not to kick but i i know that i have to kick so i'm just, i'm gonna kick it and it just goes up and there was no point to it there was no one chasing it in a serious like you know could get it manner it didn't go deep enough to cause any pressure to the all blacks like i was probably 30 meters out from the try line um, and it was nowhere near a sideline either. Like, it was just midfield bomb. It made no sense. So that's the kind of thing that I want to stamp out, that really aimless, no, you know, thought process kicking. Yep. And if it came off the side of the boot, fair enough, but it didn't seem like it. You just want to see them, like, play it off the nine there, go for a box kick um, yep. and put it into touch. Or And if Tate's getting pressured, then you just take a couple more hit-ups, get a bit, little bit more central for him to get a good angle for the kick yep. and then go again. Pick like, our ability to execute some of the basics in this game was incredibly disappointing, and that example is the best of it. Like, we can't clear our own 22. We turn over possession and it results in a try not long after. I've got a question around that, around the kicking. Did the refereeing team just forget that they've introduced a 50-22 rule in this game? Like early I don't on think in there the was first one half, though, was there? I didn't yeah, think there was. early on in the first half, Tate McDermott has the ball on halfway and he chips it over the top and it goes out in the 22. And he's clearly going for a 50-22. That's the only reason he kicks it out. Yet they don't award it. And Tate's standing really? there talking with his hands up, going like, what, what, I've gone for the 50-22. And there was no... There was no um, reason given as to why it wasn't, but he's kicked it from inside his own half and it's rolled out without being touched by an all-back player in the 22. So why was that not given? Weird. I don't, I don't remember that. It didn't get taken it back was, into it the was half. Like, it was like the third or fourth minute. Hmm. I do, I, the two consecutive box kicks, I do remember that, but I thought he must have just been inside the half. So I have to rewatch that to see where he was because, yeah, that was something that I thought I'm surprised another team tried to execute. So maybe they just saw that not get given and um, didn't want to go for it. But I... I assumed that he was inside the New Zealand half. Um, the next question we've got come through is uh, from John Williams at JW underscore Briz Vegas. Awesome, awesome <laughs> handle. Um, and it's in regard to Matt Tamur. I've heard Ando, so it's all, well, go to you, Mitch. He says, is this Matt Tamur's last game for Australia? Can't see him back after that. Why are our backs so slow? So um... I guess Tamur did make the least metres and didn't make overly great carries of decisions. So are you on board with that? I don't know if it'll be his last ever game for Australia, but in the current uh, the current sort of climate, the reason he was brought in there was to take some of the pressure off Noel Alessio at 10, give him another playmaker, give him a kicking option, and he didn't do any of those things. He was the one that was guilty of throwing two of those intercepts uh, so and kicking the ball away aimlessly, and he didn't, he didn't shore up the backs at all. He wasn't directing play like we've seen someone like Carmichael Hunt at the Tars do, so... For me, Ikitao had more of an impact there than Matt Tamua did, so I don't really see him getting picked. Uh, Matt Tamua getting picked over Ikitao again in the centres. Potentially, he goes onto the bench as a as a back 
uh, as a utility back at the moment, while we've still got players like James O'Connor and Vunivalu uh, out injured. But yeah, he's. I would say his days are numbered. Yeah, sharks are circling. Um, Chris Andon's got a nice bit of positivity, so I do like this. He says, Wallabies are the Reds three or four years ago. Time and faith is what we need. What say you? And I'm on board with that. Are we all in agreement? It's a pretty young side, and we don't yeah. expect them to be world beaters. That's, that's kind of where I came to um, the... So I, I genuinely went for a rage walk after the game. <laughs> I was so angry. I was so frustrated at the second half performance that I just couldn't be in the house because I would have... <laughs> said words that were unkind towards people um and so i I just went for a walk and um it was super helpful and by the end of it coming back i was able to think about the fact that i probably had my expectations totally wrong thinking that we were a realistic shot of claiming i'll wear that i'll wear that um (laughs) but also the fact that if you look at our combined experience across the team our combined caps across the back line particularly which are so inexperienced yeah so incredibly inexperienced and even when you do have a few guys that, like if you think Noah Lolasiu he's our best 10 at the moment with Jock injured how much time has he actually had how, how many yeah. games has he actually had for Australia or the Brumbies and you look at all those things together and to me Time and faith. Give these guys two years under Rennie as a complete squad and um, I think they they do have the capacity to turn in some really good performances. And the thing is, everyone will be like, oh, stop saying the word rebuild. Well, the, the reality is we are because it's a new coach with a new group of players and just because we've had to go through rebuilds in the past that haven't worked doesn't mean that we don't have to do it again now. I think so, the problem we yeah. find ourselves in is that we actually, the Wallabies don't have that time. The Reds, the Waratahs, like any provincial Australian side, potentially does. But the Wallabies are the figurehead of the sport in the country. So there's really no reason why we should ever get to a rebuild stage. It's poor planning from the management part that we get to a position where we're like, well, we're not going to be good for three or four years and we just have to be okay with that. Like they're charging people hundreds of dollars to go and watch them play. Um, They need to be winning. We need to be lining up tests against teams that are actually going to test us, uh, build combinations and stretch our players, not going up against teams that can absolutely smash us and it's going to be a 50-point scoreline. We need to be better as a sport. Our sport's already dwindling. Standard doing as much as they can to really pump the tyres up at the moment, but we need performances on the board to bring the fans back. And The good thing is I think that is fixable with um, this team. I think that game... While not an outlier per se, it was the worst example. But tidy up a few things and we lose respectably, which isn't the aim, but is definitely better and easier to talk about. Um, we'll quickly cover Gold Digger got in touch with all these great points and the amount of likes it got is testament to that. We have uh, just to... around this, we probably could do a whole nother Royal Rumble around what Gold Digger has just suggested here. There's oh, so much in this yeah, tweet. Maybe we should. But we'll run through it. We'll run through it. The review of Super Rugby Trans-Tasman and our involvement in it, getting some Australia A matches going, the NRC replacement, and also the amount of overseas Wallabies in line to return for the World Cup uh, need to be back playing in Australia by the end of the year. So there's so many things that got brought up. And in isolation, any of those things would be great, but also all four of them, like, why aren't we doing those things? Why aren't we trying to make the game as strong as possible? Uh, Jason Sherman in touch again saying, on Super Rugby Trans-Tasman, honestly, this Belizzo series has reinforced the idea 
we can't match it with the NZ teams in terms of talent. So Super Rugby Trans Tasman is just going to be an exercise in futility and demoralisation. I mean, this is sort of covering the same point. We've talked about how New Zealand just are dumb, but I think we need to keep playing them. We just got to find different ways of doing it all. You know, getting different players across to assist. I've got with um, I've got something I I think Jason Sherman tweeted on earlier in the week as well. Um, that I think is a great idea. And what if we look at strength? Uh, reducing the Bledisloe Cup series from three games to one. So that doesn't mean we don't play New Zealand three times. We still play them. Uh, we have a Bledisloe Cup test, which is a one-off, which we played last weekend. Then we go into the rugby champs and that just is part of the rugby champs. But honestly, this competition is so hard to win. And I don't want to come across as a whingy Wallabies loser fan, but <laughs> if you go back and have a look at the statistics of how often we've played New Zealand in Bledisloe Cup tests in New Zealand and look at how many we've actually played in Australia and which ones, which years we've played more tests in Australia in a Bledisloe 3 than we've played in New Zealand. I think it's like one or two in the last 15 to 20 years. Like we play all of the games in New Zealand. This year we've had two games back-to-back at Eden Park. We've had New Zealand referees, New Zealand refereeing teams, it's just getting to a point where it's actually un- unachievable for us to realistically beat the All Blacks twice to claim the Bledisloe. I think we potentially could beat them once on a good day, but I don't see us being able to do... Like, if we, say, we get to a point where the Wallabies um, can beat the All Blacks twice, brilliant. But I don't see that being something that goes through years and years and years. I imagine we'd win the Bledisloe once and New Zealand would be better for it the next year and we go on another 20 years. <laughs> I, I'm slightly more optimistic. I think we can um, sort of mix it once we get everything in order. But, uh, I mean, there's so much that has to change from the ground up. And I think trying to make slapdash um, improvements, which seems to be the Wallabies way over the last 10 years, isn't going to be the way to do it. Um, I will just say on that note, and the destination makes a difference. Why don't we just play at Suncorp? Our last five tests there, 2011, we won by five points. 2012, we drew. 2014, we lost by one point. And then 2017 and 2020, we won both those matches. So only one loss in the last five games at Suncorp. Why aren't we doing that more often? But they were all three. Uh, they were all dead rubbers by the by that point, weren't they? Uh, like game. One three. of them wasn't. One of them wasn't. <laughs> one of them wasn't. We'll take it. <laughs> one of them wasn't. Uh, Sheepy gets in touch to say, "What do we need to change for the Springbok style of play?" Argues we probably just play our game to the best of our ability, the more physical version. But what about the box? Now, I'll cover that to say we need to change everything. The box exploit mistakes. If we make mistakes, they are going to run through us and it will not be pretty to watch. So we need to really knuckle down on discipline. Um, the Springboks have awesome defense. They're not going to offer super huge amounts in attack because they've never needed to. Um, our defense has to be top-notch because theirs is. So that's the big thing. Um, I will also caution, I don't like the idea of people saying, okay, we'll get the win over the RGs when we do this. We're not guaranteed to do that. We haven't beaten them under Rennie. Mm -hmm. So that's got to be, I think, something we aim for, not expect nearly. Um, And that gets us to the comments. Nick Vasiliev is in touch saying, I'm not surprised about the result. Would have been happy with a close loss because the All Blacks always shot game two. All of showed heart, but for 20 minutes after halftime, just lost all composure. We know where we went wrong. My hope is unlike the days of check. The boys take it and learn. This seems to be a common theme because Tony Mickley got in touch saying the same thing. Um... Is it something that's just a mental thing? It seems like those before half times we sort of fix, but after half times we just capitulate. And is this something that just, you know, we get the mental side right, it's suddenly a much closer game? I think so. You 
the the amount of times that people talk about championship minutes when referring to the All Blacks is frustrating from a listener point of view, but it's it's frustrating because it's true. And you look at both games, the the key moments of the last two games have happened just either side of halftime really and it's when New Zealand obviously target they obviously lift the intensity and we are even though the team surely is expecting it just aren't able to match that lift in speed intensity aggression aggression and execution um so I I hope that come experience over time will grow better at being able to weather those storms and take the limited opportunities that we will have against a team as good as New Zealand. At the moment, we're just not able to execute properly with the half chances that we get, which is why we can have the lion's share of possession and do so little with it like we saw on the weekend. Um, look, I should have given more credit as well to Hugh Tyndall and Jed Leeson. They were the ones that got in touch also mentioning uh, things about you know just fixing those basics and that mental side of things. Uh, Tony Mickley was getting in touch saying how we need some more height in the second row and I guess we'll come into touch with that a bit more with the ghetto law. Um, but one of the things that I think should be discussed just off that, and Mitch, I'll throw it to you for this, with the yellow card, hindsight's obviously a lot easier to dictate, but would you have gone for the three, or do you think it was the right decision, they just need a better line-out? Uh, I, would have, I would have done the exact same thing that Hooper did. You back your yep. line-out in that instance because you score and you go ahead. You score a converted try and you actually go ahead on the scoreboard, and then we're looking at a different outcome. Yeah. So you're not expecting exactly. with the pressure that we were putting them in at that time, yeah. and the fact that they just lost the number eight. Um, it was a number eight, wasn't it? Yeah, um, severe. Yeah. They've just lost a number eight. The capacity to withstand the rolling mall is therefore depowered or diminished. Like it, it is a good decision, and anybody saying that they should have taken a three—that's retrospective and not reading the game yeah. in the moment that it was in. Because if they go to the lineout and they win it, they get a rolling mall on. They put the pressure straight back on because if they don't even if they don't convert that if the All Blacks drop it they're potentially looking at another yellow card and a penalty try. Yep. Yeah. So, and I think a good point that got brought up at um, the couch I was watching on was people saying, "Well, why didn't we go for the scrum? We've got the one man advantage in the forwards, and we just got a scrum penalty before we're on the five meter line." There were so many good options. I think it's just really unlucky the way that panned out. Uh, Bud and Willis got in touch to say that after game one, anyone who threw a cutout pass should be benched for game three and <laughs> mentions something I'm all too familiar with that I played the lowest level of rugby and it was drummed into us that a cutout is almost never the answer. And Bud, that is 100% true. My last season of rugby, every uh, <laughs> game run? or tr- every training would start with a bit of uh, uh, touch and I would probably steal seven intercepts a match but i would also let about seven tries in because i'm going for an intercept all the time it's never the answer um and throwing them is just it, it's a schoolboy rookie mistake that you'd, you'd get out of as soon as possible loose had greg with one last point to finish on for this bit i think we might have a little more um Got a few more yep keep things in perspective the world's number six ranked team just played two tests away against the number two ranked team argentina seven uh, had the same problem against the one-on-one one team. Results were as expected. There's an argument of that that I do understand, and we're not probably better than six in the world at the moment, but I, I want us to be, and I feel like we can be. So I think that potential just isn't quite matching up with where we are at the moment. Um, we've also got Murray Amos getting in touch, saying, Oz played really well in the first half. It was great rugby all round, but in the second half, we let them run, and they capitalised on every mistake we made. New Zealand played better than they had Sevilla been and took the game away from us. Yeah, it's already been pointed out. A really good follow is Matt Alvarez on uh, on Twitter. He brought up this great point about how they 
dictated the game perfectly with kicking and running when they had the uh, yellow card. It was just really clever rugby that we haven't quite got up to. And kick the ref and the ghoulies, another amazing Twitter. <laughs> this is amazing. Um, <laughs> pivotal moment, took line out instead of scrum after yellow card. Crucial moment, momentum shifted, class on bench didn't fire. Um, so you're just mentioning the scrum again, but also, yeah, I think it's a good point. I was excited by the bench. I, I had this odd feeling of like, yeah, Wilson, he's like a great impact player, despite never playing on the bench. Uh, Scott Seo, he's very experienced, despite not having played the last, you know, five tests. I think just maybe a few calls that, in hindsight, again, it looks easier, but maybe wasn't that great. Uh, Frank Guinea, it's not the game plan or the intent. Can't question the commitment. Aside from the clear breakdown in the midfield, they are not executing the clutch moments at crucial times. It's not just this group. It's ingrained. No genuine eight. Back row still not settled. Paisami is a 12 in exclamation points. We're covering a lot of the same ground, so it's good to see that... Um, you know, the, the Pick and Drive Rugby Twitter followers are just as switched on as the Pick and Drive <laughs> Rugby hosts. Until it um, starts to call in actual results of the games. Oh, except for that bit where they are schooling us. Um, and then one of the other things, um, Wayne Viney getting in touch saying, I'm almost apathetic. It's what we come to expect 19 years and counting. Yes, the Blood is Low series loss is old enough to drink and vote. It is a shocker. <laughs> so, look... Jeff, uh, sorry, one last one. Jeff got in touch as well. He's said the same things we're saying. First half wasn't bad. Second half a shocker. I think he has a real momentum sort of killer, but, you know, it, it's something that we've got to move up and move past with because we've got to play them again in two weeks' time. So that is a whole lot of um, engagement. We'd love that. Love hearing their thoughts and opinions and Indeed. questions from everyone after the match. Yeah. And I'm glad that we're a little bit more um, settled to go through Ooh, it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but we might leave it there because um, we need to get into some pretty spicy news, if and, I may use and, that and, term. And before we shift across, I think a big round of applause needs to go to Rev for getting us through that segment <laughs> with so many questions. So thanks to all you pundits and fans out there and thanks to Rev for getting us through that. So well, mate, let's move on. Let's go. <laughs> Okay, so the biggest news that's come out or one of the biggest pieces of news that's come out in the last few days since the reaction from the Bledisloe Cup drubbing by the All Blacks is Rugby Australia is looking at removing the Gitto law. So what they're talking about at the moment and there's dribs and drabs coming through the media so we don't have a full complete story. But what has been announced is that Rugby Australia wants to remove the Gitto law so that Australian-based... So no longer is it going to be only Australian-based players picked for the Wallabies unless they've they've played 50 times for or 40 times I think they dropped it down for the Wallabies will be able to pick players from anywhere in the world there's a lot of uh, people saying yes and good and support of this and a lot of people that are saying no this is a bad thing so I'll throw this one to you first Ando what are your initial thoughts around the idea of scrapping the ghetto law uh how deep do you want me to go because I've got a full thing prepared do you want me to go deep a full deep thing. Deep. Go on, Tim. Okay. All right. So Get into it. I'll go for a little bit. Um, I shall go for a bit, and then I'll, and then I'll shut up. We do have some questions that have come into the locker room around this as well, yeah, so um, yeah. we may cut to them at certain points. But cool. yeah, you go. So I I strongly disagree with this proposal. From it, if it is just a single standalone concept that is thrown in to try and fix a problem. Okay. If it's part of a greater package in which Rugby Australia is trying to address some of the issues and deficiencies within Australian rugby, then I'm more okay with it. But currently, if it's we're losing, let's get some of our better players back, let's scrap the ghetto law, then I strongly disagree with it. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. And I basically think that way for a bunch of reasons. I think that it may well lead to the short-term benefits, but I'm not convinced that it's actually the best way to be using our resources that we have within Australian rugby to benefit, so, so that the benefits outweigh the negatives. So if you think about it, what are the benefits of scrapping a Gitter War? Well, pretty simply, you get access to the best players that Australian rugby has, regardless of whether they play in Australia or not. Theoretically. Theoretically, correct. And that's part of my negatives. Um, Mm -hmm. So benefits. Supposedly, you have access to the best players across the globe. You get um, players have the chance to leave Super Rugby clubs and hopefully play in some of the best competitions and in some of the best clubs throughout the world, depending upon where they go and who they play for. It also removes the idea that um, we're actually potentially restraining the opportunity for trade within these players by putting these restrictions upon them. It's actually a really big thing within European law um, that you can't have these restraints on trade as well. So that's an interesting point to consider as well. Uh, and players get the opportunity to go where the money is. But, and in some ways that actually is more equitable because they have a short career. They need to be earning as much money as they can. It makes sense that we would give them the opportunity to go overseas and still represent their country from that limited earnings potential. But the negatives, and I think the negatives are massive. Okay, so point number one is there's no guarantee that the clubs are going to release their players outside of the agreed upon international windows anyway. So I'm pretty sure that significant portions of the rugby championship are outside of the international window. Is that Mm -hmm. correct? Yep. Yep. So that's something to consider as well. Um, There's a really high likelihood that the player drain of Australian players overseas will increase and they won't necessarily be going to the best teams or the best competitions in the world. They might be going to Pro De Two, or they might be going to some of the lesser teams within Japanese um, league. And so the benefit of sending them to high performance systems throughout the world is then diminished if they're not playing in those high performance systems too. Uh, and then you're going to, as a result of that, lower the quality of the Australian Super Rugby teams, which lowers the quality of the domestic product that we're putting out for marketing and um, financial incentives. And we're going to keep getting smacked by New Zealand teams in Super Rugby. And therefore, it's going to just lower the enjoyment that the regular rugby fan who's not paying attention to overseas games actually has. So those are the negatives from my point. I'm going to pause you there. We'll come back to you, Andy, because oh, I think the conversation oh. will will come round. <laughs> right. But we've had a, we've had a question come in from Ian Roger, and what's he's asked? What's the opinion on the rumored scrapping of the Gitto Law? Will it be the end of Super Rugby and professional rugby in Australia? What are your thoughts around this, Rev? I think if they scrap uh, the Gitto Law completely, and it's just a complete free for all, I think it makes the Super Rugby uh, teams, uh, the Australian Super Rugby teams, weaker in the short term, definitely. And then we don't know what the long term will be. It might end up being that, you know, they just have to fight for these positions and, you know, it does build some strength or at least wider depth. But, yeah, I think if we just completely relax the law and say, you know, go wherever, do whatever, um, then that is a short-term loss. Um, But I don't know if that's where they're leaning. I don't think they're trying to scrap it completely. I think they're trying to amend it. And the amending is where I'm actually quite on board. Hmm. It's been interesting to see some of the stuff that's come out, particularly on social media, is there's a lot of former players who are very much in support of this. Now, I don't know exactly where they come from and what perspective, whether they're purely thinking that they'll have the best players playing for the Wallabies or they're thinking as a player, it's great to be able to go over and play in Europe, in France, in Japan and get paid millions of dollars and then still get selected for the Wallabies. It's kind of like you've got your cake and you're eating it too. Um, what's your kind of thought around that, Ando? I um yeah, I, I question the perspective that they're coming from because 
a really important thing to remember is just because a player has been an excellent player for club and country does not mean that they are a good sports administrator. And so a, a great <laughs> example is the really interesting, well-written, well-argued article that Will Genia put up on Raw yesterday or today. And it's, it's a very good piece. And I understand a lot of where he's coming from. But just because Will Genia says something doesn't mean that it's actually true. And just yeah. doesn't, doesn't mean that that is the direction that the sporting market in Australia is going to be heading. Conversely, you can say the exact same thing for me as well. Um, and so I just want to point out that just because um, players, I'm not saying Quade Cooper, but if, say, Quade Cooper, Will Genia, um, Drew Mitchell, I know is somebody that's in support of Williams, Matt Kudo, yeah. yeah, all those guys, just because they're players coming out and saying this doesn't mean it's some, that's a reason why we should go ahead and do it. Their view is um, shaped by their experiences as a player, which could be valuable for the discussion, but shouldn't be a determining factor. Yeah. Now, you mentioned before, Rev, that you're on board with the idea of being an amendment to the Giddo law. Now, what we haven't been... It's not been confirmed, set in stone by Rugby Australia, what they're planning, whether they're looking at scrapping it completely, changing the test cap... Uh, allowing it for certain competitions or others. We don't really know. We don't know if they're going to implement this immediately so that players based in Europe will be able to be selected on this year's spring tour or if they're looking at bringing it in 2022. What are you? What sort of amendments would you like to see to be made to the ghetto law? Um, I think while I was going through this, I just wanted to get an idea of the players that had left and sort of what the rule had meant so far because... Um, Checker brought the rule in to help his 2015 campaign by making it seven years of service in Australia and 60 caps, which in the history of professional rugby in Australia, starting back at Steve Larkham, uh, we've only had 34 Wallabies get 60 caps and only nine of them have actually stayed in Australia the whole time. 25 of them have gone overseas at some point. So it's more common than not when you play that many games, you do go overseas uh, normally at the end of your career. So I want to look at the other players that haven't got the 60 caps. And, you know, in the last 10 years, we've had over 225 players leave Super Rugby to play for an overseas team, um, which is a lot. You know, in 10 years, it's, you know, averaging quite a lot per team. It's, you know, over five per team per year. Um, from that list, 42 of them uh, were Wallabies that left in their prime. Oh, sorry. Let me rephrase that because some of them are in the prime. 42 of them were Wallabies that left uh, at the end of their career. So that's probably a fair way to reflect it. Uh, 30 of them left in their prime. So that's a decent contingent, you know, like players like James O'Connor who had his, you know, um, trip overseas, Genia, Cooper, Ioane, Drew Mitchell, Nick White, Matt Tamua, Kirtley Beal, Sean McMahon, Will Skelton, Rory Arnold, Simon Karevi. A lot of players we're talking about now um, left in their prime. The good thing is more than half of them came back at some point. So there is some of that draw card when we get to Rugby World Cups. And then the other section that I considered was the players that left and then improved. And so these guys that went overseas because they weren't getting game time and have come back and actually added something more. So Dean Mum, he was an absolute bum before he left and he came back and he <laughs> was a pretty useful in the World Cup, even though he wasn't people's favourite cup of tea. Um, the Waratahs have had that with Damien Fitzpatrick and Dave Parecki at hooker because Pilotta now had that number two jersey for so long. Uh, Lockie McCaffrey, uh, Jesse Mogg, Bryce Hegarty, Cameron Orr, Caden Neville, and I think the best example, Andrew Kellaway. So many people that have gone overseas because they got a bit of game time in Super Rugby. It wasn't enough, so they went overseas, and now they've come back and given to the game. So the vast majority of people are coming back. What I'd like to see is the number of caps um, 
that you have to have had to have come back dropped from 60 to 15. If we drop to 15, out of all those players that left of their prime, so 30 players, only two of them didn't have 15 caps. So all of them did have at least that base of experience we could draw from them if need be. Out of the players overseas at the moment, there's, I think, 28 that are capped Wallabies. 18 of them have 15 or more caps, including the players we want. Tolu Latu does, Simon Karevi does, Rory Arnold, Will Scott, and they've all got more than 15. Uh, Sean McMahon. So I think if we make that adjustment, it's fine. But also in Ando's point, we need to have a certain amount of um, caps because otherwise we can't uh, control how many people are going overseas. So I think the 15 cap limit, but also in amending uh, what Rennie had, was picking two players from anywhere. I think make it four or five. You know, the uh, the Springboks just won a World Cup with, uh, I think, seven players in the starting 23 uh, were from overseas clubs. I don't think we need to go that extreme because we don't have the same depth, but four or five players, and I'd be happy with that. So my amendment would be if we can pick five players from overseas and they have to have 15 caps or more, then that's fine. Okay. One of the biggest fears I have around changing these rules is the expectation that we put on these players that they're going to come back and win us a Bledisloe Cup or win us a rugby championship. And the thought is that they have to be better than what we currently have in Australia because they're getting picked and taking spots off players who have committed to Australian rugby, are doing the hard yards in our systems and uh, are giving it their all playing for Australian-based super rugby clubs. Now, if we look at super rugby at the current format, our Australian-based players go up against New Zealand competition upwards of eight times a year if they're playing in the Wallabies. So they play each New Zealand team twice and then they play the the All Blacks if they're playing in the Wallabies or they're training and they're being exposed to that. We bring in players who are playing against French or English competition. We're looking at like a mismatch of talent there. I don't necessarily think, and we need to be very careful about expecting players that have played for years. Like if we bring Will Skelton back and expect him to all of a sudden be the best second row that we could possibly have to win us a Bledisloe or to to be the best option for the Wallabies, he hasn't played against a New Zealand team in four or five years at New Zealand competition. So it's a mismatch of parity there. Um, we've got to be very careful what we do there. We're also undermining the Australian system and undermining the players that have chosen to stay and we're not rewarding them. So it's a very interesting thing. One of the arguments for the ghetto law is that it frees up uh, a lot of money by Rugby Australia and that our top-end players will not be paid by Rugby Australia to retain the players. They'll go over and they'll get the majority of their earnings overseas. So you would think that it would free up a bit of money in Rugby Australia to do other things. If that is the case, Ando, what what would you like to see them do with that extra money? I think one of the big things they need to be doing is expanding the opportunities for game time that our players are having. And if that is through an expansion of Super Rugby, so we simply play more games, if that is through the introduction of an NRC replacement, so that, similar to the ITM Cup, so players can actually get some high or some good quality game time throughout this fallow period of the season for non-international players that's incredibly important um one of the things i was going to mention before is there's there's a fantastic comparison of the difference between um english players and their development pathways or the the experience opportunities and australian players so a great opportunity is marcus smith 22 year old we recently got a uh tour cap for the british and irish lions um he's 22 plays for harlequins in the english premiership versus noah lulisi 
Okay, he's 21 year old, so they're only one year apart. Guess how many caps Marcus Smith has for Harlequins? 25. Okay, 25. 40. 105. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so at a 22-year-old... Now, he is a bit of a prodigy. He's a fantastic player, without a shadow of a doubt. So, like, cool. He's he's maybe, maybe not the greatest in terms of the quality that he brings. But he is a 22-year-old fly half, similar to Noah Lolasiu. He's been 105 caps for Harlequins and he's only got two England caps and he got caught up for the British Lions squad. Noah Lolasiu has 23 caps for the Brumbies and seven caps for Australia and he is our starting fly half at this point because of injuries to the incumbent James O'Connor and you just look at the difference there. I mean England have Owen Farrell, George Ford, um, who else is ahead of them at 10? Uh, I'm sure there are other players that others, are missing here as well. Others, yeah. Um, but my point basically is, unless we expand the opportunities for our players to be playing good quality games more throughout the season, we're just going to be um, falling behind because we're expecting too much from our young players. They simply don't have the experience in good against good quality opposition to be able to develop at the rate that other players throughout the world are. That's great stats. I, I am blown away that it's that many more because we had a look at some of the halfbacks between, I think, Joe Powell and Mitch Drummond um, between Australia and New Zealand and the Monitor Cup bumps up the professional games. But that is a lot of premiership rugby and that's good quality opposition they're up against. Yep. So 26 games a season. That is, yeah. And what did we have this year? Uh, 10. Eight. Eight. And then the trans has, so 13 at an absolute, you know, I guess max without the final. Yeah. That is crazy. Half the amount, and yeah. All right. Does anyone have anything else they wanted to say around the ghetto law before we move on? Um, I, I guess I, I do, but Mitch can go. Rev can go. <laughs> the only thing I want to add in was similar to the um, Argentina comment about you know we're expecting the win. I think a lot of people are thinking that this is a silver bullet. Oh, like yeah, we'll get these guys in and you know back to winning. Um. Looking at like the 2016 to 2018 period where a lot of these players were playing, we played the All Blacks nine times and won one of them. Um, eight of those losses, you know, a lot of them were by pretty significant amounts. And that had Sean McMahon, that had, uh, you know, Rory Arnold, Adam Coleman, Simon Karevi, Tolu Latu. Like, they were playing those Skelton. games. And I don't think, outside of Skelton, I don't think any of them have gone overseas and improved drastically. I think they were all really good when they left and would come back at about the same, maybe slightly better. Skelton probably the one that's really improved out of sight, but I, I don't think if we do get that relaxing of the laws or you know an amendment to it, I think we've got to have sort of tempered expectations of, well, these guys you know were great, but they also didn't beat the All Blacks when they had the chance, yeah. um, and we've got to recognise it's you know a twenty-three man effort and not just you know we've seen Hooper and Corbetti as good as they are, they can't do it by themselves. We need you know. 20 of the 23 players really putting a good shift in. Yep. Yeah, for sure. A couple of points I want to throw in there to consider as well, um, which aren't necessarily benefits or negatives around this, but just things to think about. Uh, that points. the Premiership and is um, it's changing its name to Top Rugby League, isn't it? The Japanese competition. Yeah. Um, Top Rugby League, which is just a freaking horrific name for a rugby union <laughs> competition. But anyway, um, they are both restricting opportunities for foreign-owned players. 
Um, so the Premiership is reducing its salary cap by around about £2 million next season. And um, that means that clubs are going to be focusing more upon academy products and English England qualified players because they actually get a portion of the salary reduced uh, or kind of like taken off the salary cap so they can pay for more players. So that just means that you're not going to want a, a middling to decent Australian player to go over to your club. Um, it's Maybe they'll take some of the top, top tier players like a Michael Hooper or something like that, but they're not just going to take your average journeyman like we've seen within London Irish because the, that's just not going to be an option moving forward with the salary cap changes. And um, top the top rugby league are reducing the numbers of foreign um, player slots that are available within their teams as well so it may well be that there are just less opportunities for players overseas too unless it's then going to be in a lower comps final thing if we're going to go down this path if we're going to go down this path in my opinion we're going to have to start opening up to private equity in super rugby um, the uh, rugby Australia just simply doesn't have the money or Australian rugby in a general sense doesn't have the money to be able to support high quality functioning super rugby teams and put in play what is such a desperately needed next tier below super rugby and how are you going to get that without private equity um, well, the question I have around private equity is who's actually going to want to invest in Australian that's, super rugby I know, I know I know but Surely, that's yeah. there's a group of dads at Newington or Churchy or you know one of the you know, private schools that can just, you know, fork out the, the tab. But aren't They've... they already on the board? They're already on the Waratahs board. They, yeah. have, they own, it, own it anyway. <laughs> yeah, actually, they're getting money by doing a lot less. So, yeah. Yeah. They don't have to throw their money in. Anyway, that's yeah, me a, with all my ditto law Yeah, rap, it's a very interesting It's a very interesting point you raised, Rose, there, Ando, particularly around the players being released by the clubs. And Wayne Smith put a great article out saying around the ditto law. And he was saying that in some ways it might actually... Uh, de-intent, uh, make the Australian players, like you said, and less of an incentive to sign because there's going to, um, you would imagine there'd be some kind of contractual obligation in signing them that they have to be released to play for the Wallabies. Because currently as things stand, you could go overseas and play, but the Wallabies come asking and say, can we, can you release Will Skelton or Tolu Latu? We want him to play for us. There's nothing that the, the French clubs or the English clubs, there's nothing saying that they have to do that. So they're in their rights to turn around and say, no, you can't have him. He, he's going to go and play for you and get injured. And we're paying him big bucks to sit on the pine for the next six months. So there's no incentive for the clubs to do that either. So they've got Rugby Australia has to think through how they do this. They can't just remove it and expect to be able to get all these players um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Or World Rugby has a bloody global calendar and stops allowing French and British clubs to dictate to the rest of the world. It'll but never that's happen. A separate thing. It'll never happen. We Bill got the Beaumont, closest we ever got, douchebag. but it never happened. Can I make uh, one any last, final points? One last yep. change, I think. Last point. When we say ghetto law, we're glorifying the idea of going overseas. I want to admit it. Let's uh, friend of the pod. Let's make it the Ben Alexander law because he oh, brilliant. He, <laughs> he has the record for the most Super Rugby caps played by an Australian without going overseas. So. Nice round of applause. If you're sitting at home listening to this, give a little clap and pat on the back for Ben Alexander. I reckon let's entice the Ben Alexander law. Let's see who can stick around in Australia for the longest. That's a bloody good idea. Brilliant. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well, let's move on. Let's go. Let's, let's go. go. And to our last game of the week, we feel bad for not giving them the, the credit they were due beforehand. But the Springboks played Argentina for their first game in nearly two years because of uh, the Tri-Nations last year. The Springboks got up 32-12, to continuing on a lovely reign of form. 
uh, from their Lions tour. And impressively, probably the most impressive bit, in their last 10 matches, they have conceded just four tries, leading the way by far with their defense. So an awesome effort, um, I think, by the Springboks. Uh, the 32 points came through some nice tries, uh, some really opportunistic tries by uh, Kobus Reinach and Afaleli Farsi in the first half. Uh, and then Mornay Stain, he kicked the match winner in the Lions Tour, and then he threw the final pass for the try in this match. So really impressive effort from the evergreen Mornay Stain. But this game was a, a tough one to watch because I think I wanted to see two teams suffer. I wanted a draw. I wanted it to be negative. <laughs> I, I just had that bad feeling after the Wallabies loss. And credit to the Springboks, uh, at the moment, they just don't really know how to lose. So I am very impressed by this. It's made me very keen to see us play both of these sides. I'm more confident against Argentina than I am against the Springboks. But plenty to like about this. Uh, we've mentioned the three tries to zero. Uh, Argentina were really, really quite poor under the high ball. And I think that shows with the prep. The Springboks got to play the best team or the best combined team in the world. And Argentina played two games against Wales and one against Romania. But the Welsh team was without its lines. So a very different proposition coming up. And unfortunately, they're going to be all the better for this preparation. Uh, now, Mitch, you, know, you guys got to watch the game as well. And I wouldn't say it was worth staying up for and watching live, <laughs> um, which hopefully not too many of our, our listeners did. Hopefully just watched the mini and that's that suffice. Uh, but, Ando, what were your takeaways from the match? Did anyone stick out for you? from that uh, very much Springboks B team? Oh, look, I was... You, you just can't go past Fassi's um, try. This, his ability to pull it in whilst at full stretch was absolutely incredible. So that was that was an amazing piece of skill. Um, <clears throat> I think overall I was just impressed with the ability of the kind of New York front row for the Springboks to really just bring it home and smash the Argentinians. But when you think about it, the Argentinian front row, apart from Montoya, was incredibly... Um, incredibly inexperienced as well so Gomez and Tetas were quite poor throughout the game and I really was expecting more overall from Argentina but yeah it was it was quite a tepid performance great use of tepid thank you Uh, (laughs) Mitch on on top of Fassi were there any other standouts on either side of the uh, ledger Um, overall I just I I felt like this game in some ways kind of mirrored the Wallabies game and the All Blacks game in that the South Africans or the Springboks scored a lot of their points off the errors of Argentina and they were just pouncing on the simple mistakes and it really came down to, I think, the prep that you said earlier, Rev, around the fact that Argentina hasn't looked... They look very much like a team who hasn't played a lot of rugby together, particularly in the last few weeks, whereas this South African side coming off the British and Irish Lions just looked a little bit better. Um, There wasn't really anyone for me that stood out being brilliant or, or not that brilliant i was disappointed with argentina i thought they would have put in a better performance than this um and hopefully they put in a little bit better effort this weekend the one player that i think i'll give a little shout out to just because he didn't have a great lions tour was uh the string box number eight jasper visa mm-hmm. he yep. has the really <laughs> difficult task of filling the shoes of Dwayne vermulen who's just been one of the world's best number eights for probably a decade uh, but he really improved. He had 12 carries for nearly 80 metres and seven defenders beaten. In a game where it wasn't super wide open, he did a really good job, I think, of just trying to cement himself as probably the best number eight of the round. Um, it might be even something we look into, maybe putting some sort of team of the round together at some point, but it it was an interesting performance, and despite the Springboks winning by so much, I think, Mitch, you're right, 
they never really looked that dominant. It was a, just a lot of capitalizing on the the weak points of Argentina. Yeah, Argentina made um, them look a lot better than they were. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So if I'm versing either of these teams, sorry, I shouldn't say that word. If I'm playing <laughs> either of these teams, I get called out for that all the time. Um, I'd really be saying, well, with the Springboks, I can't make any mistakes. And with Argentina, I also need to defend the wide channels because we saw Santiago Carreras get a bit of ball in space. And my God, he's rapid. So that's going to be a really interesting headache for teams that don't contain them as well as the Springboks did. Um, but really, that's probably what we want to say. They're going to play each other again at the same stadium. It'll probably be similar Argentinian team because they went full strength. But we might see a few more of the Springboks from the Lions to get in and get a bit more game time just to try and warm themselves up for um, the tough battle that'll be Australia. Um, and then a nice easy game against New Zealand. So <laughs> There's one question I had around this game particularly, and that was we saw in the Bledisloe game, in the series, the last two games, is that we've had an all-Kiwi refereeing team. And this game I was expecting to be an all-South African refereeing team because they were the host nation. But we had, I think the referee was from Ireland, one of the touchies was from France and the other one was from England and the Timo was, I'm not, I can't remember off the top of my head where he was from, but we had a European-based refereeing team. Now, I wasn't particularly happy with the way the referees approached Bledisloe too. I, th- I thought that they played particularly into the All Black style and Rugby Australia, it appears, were just happy to let New Zealand say, this is the easiest option. We're just going to have a completely Kiwi refereeing team. Um why has Sanzar allowed that? It, it's asking questions that you've got a, the first round of the rugby championship with a completely one um, nation representing and refereeing one game, yet you haven't got that for the other. Uh, I don't really know why that happened, and it, it asked some serious questions around Sanzar and the appointments of referees. I think with it, it's always hard because um, I, I did see the refereeing appointments and think, well, they did have the chance with the Lions to get, you know, the schedule across maybe they were just pre-planned it a little bit better um because the big difference for this was they had already arranged to have both games in south africa um i know argentina was already blacklisted because of its um handling of the covid situation which is amazingly worse than south africa's but for the new zealand one i think just because we were planning to uh planning to move to Wellington, we were planning to have the travel bubble so we could take referees and you know go to and from uh, just last minute shift. Unfortunately, we kind of just got the the raw end at stick there. But um, I I haven't had any issues with the refereeing since um, the Marika Corbetti red card, only because I just don't think the refereeing impacted any of our results. Um, in the sense that we would have lost both games with neutral refs, with Australian refs, with whoever. So that that's my only take on that. But the refereeing, I think for full transparency and f- to remove all doubt, we should always have neutral refs. It just makes it so much simpler and it removes the the conversation or the, the need to debate uh, the integrity of these people. Um, I feel bad because I don't have much more to say about this game um, other than the fact that I'm keen to see them play again. I hope it's close and I hope both teams get a bit more um, you know, chance to spread the ball wide and attack. But the Springboks are so good at um, shutting that down that I am kind of getting impressed by it, even though I know we have to come up against it quite soon. I guess I'll so, ask Andrew, you I'll on you this one. I was just going to say, before oh. we move on to the locker room, do you expect the Springboks to bring more of their starting players from the Lions series in this week, or do they rest those for the first test against the All Blacks in a few weeks? I think we should see a few of them come in, um, especially some of the positions I just want to get some more minutes into. 
I wouldn't be surprised if they rest Eben and Lud uh, for a little bit. Just um, they've played a lot of the tests um, in, in recent time. Maybe Diego gets you know a few more minutes because he missed the start of the tour. But uh, Eben's been playing non-stop. Khaleesi's been playing non-stop. I wouldn't be surprised to see maybe those two swap out and then get you know the likes of Pollard back in. Hopefully, uh, Herschel Yanchis has recovered so he can come back in. And I mean, I love the uh, DLND and uh, Am center combination. So I'd love to see them have another crack. Um, but I guess the the nice problem for them is they just romped Argentina by 20 points without their best players. So, I mean, do you need to put them back in if you don't need to? Like, they'll they'll be pretty uh, refreshed, you'd think, after the week off. So uh, I think we will see changes, but I don't think they need to. Cool. I wonder how many of those changes were made because they were just still hung over after the <laughs> Lions series. win. Anyway, so we're going to shift really quickly now to the locker room. We do have one final question we're going to go through here from Mick Ryan. G'day, Mick. Good to have you on board. It's a question for the pod. It's a tired one, but needs to be asked. Hoops has captain Australia 57 times and is one of the worst win-loss ratios of any Wallaby captain in history. He's not the problem, but at this point, why stick with him? Rev, you had a really good reply to this, speaking at the quality of the cattle around him compared to some of the other captains who do have better winning ratios, such as, say, John Ease or George Gregan. Um, I don't... So my my thought in response to this one, before I throw to you, Mitch, is you've got to follow the uh, Tim Cocker principle from Egg Chaser Rugby. If you take him out, who are you going to put in? Okay, yeah. so you, t- you take Hoops out from the captaincy, who becomes your captain? So, Mitch. Who do I take out and put in as captain or is it yeah, my What's point your of view? thoughts and if you were going to replace him? My, my thoughts with? is uh, we've had three Wallabies coaches now who've picked Michael Hooper as their captain and they've consistently all made the same decision. So he's clearly doing something right in terms of leading this team. The results aren't coming, but I don't necessarily think that having someone else as captain in either of the last sort of four or five years would have put a different outcome out there. So um, it's much of a muchness, really. We don't really have anyone else. Maybe Alan Alatoa is the only one that's really forming as an option. But outside of that, James O'Connor, if fit, I'd love to see him have a crack. But at the same time, he's not starting and he's he's having a lot of injury problems at the moment. So we need to look at consistency too, going through to the 2023 World Cup. Who's going to take that position off Hooper at the moment? There's no one really nipping at his at his heels to replace him as a starting seven. Uh, we've got a number of options at 10. We've got a number of options at three. So Hooper, for me, is the only one we really get selected before anyone else in the team, and he's the captain. All right. I think we need to finish the pot up there. We've been going for an incredible amount of time, but it's been a lot of fun being here with you gentlemen talking rugby and trying to stay positive in what's been a pretty dismal 72 hours. So ladies, gentlemen, thank you for getting to this part of the pod. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we will see you next week. Bye. See ya.